Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Today, we welcome Roger Ferguson. I decided to call this episode Trillions and Trillions for obvious reasons. Roger has three degrees from Harvard University, including a PhD and a law degree. He was vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. He also served as CEO and chairman of TIA and is currently on the board of Alphabet, the parent of Google. Other current and previous boards include Klarna, Corning, International Flavors and Fragrances. He also served on the Conference Board, Institute for Advanced Studies, the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Columbia University's Teachers College, the 9-11 Memorial Museum, the Smithsonian Institution Board of Regents. He's also a member of the Economic Club of New York, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Group of 30, and the National Association of Business Economics. Enjoy this incredible conversation. Roger Ferguson, welcome to the show. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Look, I appreciate you being here. I know you're a very busy man and one of the few people, I don't know if anybody else on earth has touched trillions and trillions of dollars through so many lenses, but everybody puts on their pants one leg at a time. So tell me, you know, a little bit of your super early years and, you know, how did you end up in these insane, amazing places? Yeah, so thanks for the question. I think you're, you know, obviously overly complimentary in terms of what I've done. Um, so how did I start? I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, my mother was a school teacher. My father was uh, a map maker called a cartographer, a civilian for the Army. But what was interesting about him was that he had been a child of the Depression, and the Depression got him very interested in money, banking, etc. And so between the two of them, for my mother, heavy, heavy focus on education as this great gift that you know, no one can ever take away from you. And for my father, you know, we didn't call it this, but financial literacy. I mean, he had me bouncing a checkbook in the seventh, eighth grade. And so I grew up in a household where it was normal to talk about interest rates. My father, though he had very little money, would move, you know, $500 from one bank to the other based on, you know, the CD rates. And, you know, we would, this little middle, lower middle class back family sat around the TV on Friday nights looking at Wall Street Week as though we had, you know, tons of money. We had nothing. And so, you know, education, financial literacy, that was the bread and butter at, the, at my uh, breakfast table, so to speak. That led to a lot of education, including advanced degrees at Harvard. And it led to a kind of comfort around you know, talking about money as a legitimate thing for anybody, including, you know, lower middle class black people to talk about. And, you know, one thing led to another and became, you know, more sophisticated in terms of the types of conversations. And obviously, as you point out, the dollars went from, you know, a few hundred to, you know, much more. And, you know, from you know, my father's relatively you know, small amount of money to life savings for millions of Americans. So, that, that was a story, and I, true for many of us, right? We are, at the end of the day, products of our upbringing, and I happen uh -huh. to have these unique parents uh -huh. in 
the kind of atmosphere that they, in some sense, unknowingly and in some sense, knowingly created. Everybody has a different recipe. You know, your grandma probably cooked the uh, the soup a different way than my grandma, but the recipes for a good soup are usually very similar. And the question is, how do you cook it? So stay. let's stay with how do you cook it? Kind of one big sleeve of your career, which obviously started in your kitchen, uh, around your kitchen table, was vice chairing the Federal Reserve and then running, as you said, just for the, to remind the listeners, he was CEO and chairman of TIA which is one of the largest asset managers of the world, mostly with custody of retirement funds for people in education. Just from a, let's call it the business of money, why haven't we been able as a society, even with all our advances, to open up the pathways of opportunity for many people, even though the talent may be equally distributed? What are your thoughts on that? Oh my goodness, what a complicated question. <laughs> it's... To some degree, it is the, let's stay focused in the U.S., it's a global problem. But in the U.S., it's, you know, it's, um, it goes back to the fundamental family in this country. We sh have to be honest and recognize that America is both this phenomenal land of opportunity created around you know, these soaring words of, you know, all men created equal, et cetera. Yeah. That were written at a time when the only people who would vote were white males who own land. Mm -hmm. women were, you know, completely disenfranchised. And, you know, let's not even talk about, you know, enslaved people being, you know, brought here against their will, not even, you know, recognized as full human beings in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the origin story that included, you know, dispossession of, you know, what we now think of indigenous people, Native Americans, et cetera. So, you know, this, the, the, the soup, uh, to use to describe it, of America is one that has you know, all of these cross currents mm -hmm. that to this day we haven't fully resolved. Right? Mm -hmm. So we go through periods where race relations swing back and forth from you know, hopeful to hopeless when you know, we ignored uh, indigenous people, uh, then we celebrate them. You know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about this being a com country of immigrants, but we forget the fact that until the 1960s, the only people really welcomed were from Northern Europe, uh, you know, not to mention, you know, the phenomenal Hispanic culture that is an important part of the American story. And yet, you know, uh -huh. we see the back and forth around, you know, uh, people of Latin or Hispanic origin. So, you know, I think we just have to start with that as a, as a basic element of honesty. Um, mm -hmm. In my story, then I overlay, you know, consistently good education, which is not you know, readily available here mm -hmm. for all, all people. Then we have to overlay health. We've seen in the pandemic that, you know, your zip code can often define your health outcomes. Um, and so it goes on and on. But I think we have to start with being able to keep the complexity of the American story in mind without, you know, sort of demonizing anyone, just, just be honest. So, you know, my view is when you start the country, that's that complex and this diverse and, you know, all the ups and downs of economics, you end up with a very complicated 
tapestry or to use your fur, a soup that sometimes tastes really good and sometimes doesn't. Now, I am, let me be clear, I am hopeful in that I don't believe, you know, history is preordination without the ability to change it. And we've yep. seen positive moves here around race relations, you know, mm-hmm. gender, ethnicity. Um, but what we haven't seen is consistent positive moves. Um, so I'm proudly an American. I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. I think we can fix our problems, but we know from history that it's often two steps forward, one step back, and then a little bit of a turn to the left or the right that's unexpected. It's always a squiggly line, and there's just so much to unpack there. But I want to talk a little bit now about, you know, a lot of people are talking about, obviously, the the inordinate amount of debt, not only in the U.S., but the world, to finance governments and, you know, all these uh, kind of macro things that I know you're very well versed in. And there's this camp that says that, well, how else are we going to fund things? And if, you know, people are willing to <laughs> to buy our uh, our sovereign debt, well, great. Um, but there's another camp that says that this is not sustainable. And I'm not talking necessarily about a bankruptcy, but, you know, back to this tapestry issue, where do you think the best levers are? Make sure that our financing, the financing in the country and the world is sustainable because right now it is not. Right. So look, I agree that it's not sustainable. Um, the, the issue, of course, is when does that unsustainability become visible to all of us and something mm-hmm. we, has become not a problem on the horizon, but it's a problem that's near end. Look, I think the main levers of pull around all of this have to do with, in the U.S. context, saving, investment, education, productivity, all of which are basically you know, a melange of work to one thing, which is we need to have I believe a society that's much more oriented towards saving so that we're less dependent on the savings of other people, which is effectively what we're doing now. I think we need a society that is much more focused on different kinds of investments, education, et cetera, but also some of the things we're currently doing around infrastructure, for example, I'm a, you know, bringing technology that last mile is incredibly important. Uh-huh. Um, I think we have to, and here the private sector has to lead, understand the full potential productivity improvement potential of, you know, let's call it AI, but this whole suite of new technologies. Right? We have done best in America financially when we actually do best in terms of uh, making our workforce at all dimensions much more productive. Um, and, and can I, can, can I interrupt you for a second, uh, Roger, on the issue of you know, the, the one of the concerns about AI is that the labor dislocation is going to be massive in scale and also simultaneous everywhere. Wave is going to affect white collar knowledge workers. So there's this kind of tension. How do you see that? Look, I see that as a historic and inevitable tension. Whenever you think about economic history, you are, you listeners may be familiar with the concept of the Luddites. Luddites were people during the course of the Industrial Revolution who went around and basically destroyed equipment uh-huh. um, for exactly the same concerns. Uh-huh. This new equipment was going to uh, dispossess many people, get rid of massive classes of individuals and jobs. Um, and in fact, they were right. It was going to do that. What they didn't foresee is, you know, the new jobs are going to be created. And yes, the transition was 
rough on some people, easier on others. Uh-huh. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we'd all say once we learned how to manage it, an economy built around massive industrialization was per person much more productive than an economy built around you know, low-skilled, low-technology agrarian workers, full stop. Uh-huh. I'm not in any sense saying that anyone that we have now is the functional equivalent of you know any of those classes of people. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is whenever there's a new technology, transition is scary to some, creates hope in others. Some benefit more than others. And I think the magic here and is something we have, to be fair, never done really well, but we will have to learn how to do, which is to make the transition work for as many people as possible. Now, it's not that that's not an easy statement, but I think it's much more important to focus on accepting and adopting that there are going to be brand new classes of jobs that we don't yet understand, classes of jobs that we do understand are going to go away. I am an optimist and believe, you know, at the end of this transition, we're going to have a much more productive society. And I'm also realistic to know that there'll be some people who will feel legitimately feel you know dispossessed. I think we should you know say that honestly and then figure out how to work with those who are going to be dispossessed so that they can you know participate in the fruits of this new you know tech driven yeah. world that we're about to enter. It's hard to disagree with anything you said in this issue of resistance to change. Which is really interesting to hear your perspective because you have such a macro view. The resistance to change problem exists when the horse and buggy got dislocated by the car and so on and so forth. So you you do draw a line around technological innovation has been at the forefront of renovation, um, which in turn leads to to growth and prosperity. This issue of um, which I think is worth talking about. Just generally, when you look at young people today, I'm not going to date you, seems like there's so much opportunity and so many new pathways, this creator economy. I know you're on the board of Google, so you're involved in that kind of whole tech ecosystem, but it seems like there's all these pathways for people to chart their own course, something that didn't necessarily exist in your uh, age. It started existing in mine, but now it's just crazy. What do you think about, you know, it, this is kind of related to AI, but more tech of this kind of new pathways of opportunity, the fact that you only need a phone to like make a living? I think it's spectacular. And, and you know, I'm attempting to do that myself. One of the things I'm involved in is I'm a the chief investment officer and a partner in a, in a, in a incubation, I call it foundry, others call it studio and VC mm-hmm. fund called Red Cell Partners. So I am on a daily basis working with people who are, you know, let's say half my age, who are benefiting. And I am therefore also benefiting from all of this. Incredibly optimistic because I've seen through, you know, the lens that I have at, at Red Cell Plus on the board of Alphabet, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, the ability to create phenomenal new capabilities out of the phone and an app that allow people to get better health service at lower cost, have a, a wider range of investment opportunities. You know, frankly, you know, simple things that we take for granted now called you know, Uber calling for a car or, or Lyft, et cetera. So I think it's just great. I mean, I, what I've seen is, you know, young people with a single idea that create, you know, in some cases massive, in most cases small, but highly impactful, you know, companies. Um, those, yep. So I think, look at this as great opportunity for creativity, 
And what I like about it is it's creativity on a relatively small scale. Numbers that are large in some ways, small in others, so, you know, 100,000, mm-hmm. 200,000, 500,000 can actually create a workable prototype that can then be you know, commercialized. Obviously, it takes more resources, but not that much to, you know, get things off the ground in the scale of, of the economy. It feels, obviously, I didn't know, but read about Thomas Edison, it feels as though we can all... Many, many people can be you know, creative geniuses in, in their kitchens, basements, garages. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, at the very least, the distribution modes for a lot of these things have proliferated, with, which actually, if if a Thomas Edison is kind of a whack-a-mole one in a million, where there's the reason it was one in a million is because we didn't know there were 10 million, um, which is to your point. So I could go on with you for days, but I can't neither can you. Um, I would love to kind of end this thing with a kind of a lightning round. What's your favorite junk food? Oh, uh, anything potato, colored potato chips, French fries. If you think, I don't think of those junk food. I think of those (laughs) as essential elements of a balanced diet. What do you wash potatoes down with? (laughs) The things you might imagine, starting with with a diet soda and going to stuff that's much heavier than that. Any favorite artists? Both. Oh, well, look, when I was younger, obviously Motown, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, and that sticks with me now. Yeah. And ironically, this British guy named Joe Cocker, who died a few years ago, who was yeah. basically, you know, British, blue, yeah. soul, whatever. And this like this gravelly voice in a phenomenal, almost bizarre performance style. He took everybody's music and made it his own, I mean, starting with the Beatles and, and going, you know, beyond that to his, you know, Famous rendition of I put a spell and all sorts of stuff. So um, it's a funny sort of link to this guy from the northern part of England. It's this you know black guy from the northeast part of D.C. <laughs> Never met the man, obviously, but I could listen to his music, you know, every day for a few hours uh, if, if, you know, time was available. I know you probably read a lot. I love reading biographies. Mm-hmm. It's not related to... Mm-hmm. The, the core of economics, but it's all about people's stories, great leadership, you know, the ones that people read are the overcoming, you know, massive hardships, you know, moving on. My favorite one, obviously, is sort of Alexander Hamilton, but I read, you know, anything that uh, Walter Isaacson is writing, you know, amazing stuff. Goodwin, you know, any, any biography. Now, you know, the downside of that is it's really sort of, you know, great person history, often great man history, now a little bit of great women history. Um, so it doesn't get to, you know, the, the day-to-day lives of the masses of people. But I just find biographies phenomenal because it uh-huh. tells stories of mostly people coming from mostly nowhere and becoming you know, figures that you want to read about. And everyone's, to your early point, everyone's got a different origin story and seeing how all that stuff comes together. And someone like an Alexander Hamilton is just an amazing thing. It is a beautiful thing. And since you brought up Hamilton, did you prefer the biography or the Broadway or the Broadway play? You know what? Once I got the rhythm going, I'd love to play. Nothing about the biography, but to take that story and wrap it with those that, you know, rainbow of artists up there. Hip hoppy. Yeah. 
that yeah. appeal to everybody. I mean, yeah, why, yeah. why wouldn't you like that? It's it's actually it's a great place to end because it is actually emblematic of America. Like it it's just incredible what Lin Manuel did and his team. And I'm not doing this because I have rights in his stuff. I I do share a provenance which is Puerto Rico, Roger. You don't know how much we appreciate you doing this with us. I know you're a very busy man and the world is lucky to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.